the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, good evening once again. If you can leave John 14 uh, open in front of you, that'll be the passage we're looking at tonight. Uh, although, uh, looking at a topic tonight, we're going to be jumping around a bit, so if there's any other passages beyond this, they'll be up on the screen. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought each one of us along here tonight for your purposes and for your reasons. Father, as we now come to sit under your word, we ask that you will teach us, not just in our heads, but also that you'll be changing our hearts, that tonight we may come to know more of who you are in yourself, so that we may love you better, follow you more deeply. Father, will you bless us with this tonight, for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just trying to get the clicker working to the first slide. There we go. Friends, uh, about three weeks ago, uh, I officiated at a wedding down in Double Bay. Uh, And after the wedding, I was invited back to spend some time with the family at a small lunch in Mossman. It was all very nice. Uh, And I found myself sitting next to uh, a bridesmaid who was telling me how much she was into yoga. I don't know much about yoga, but I learned a fair bit. She loved yoga. Uh, It was her thing. She did it with a leading yogi three times a week. Uh, And she said to me that one of the things she loved about this instructor of hers, this yogi, was that he was so spiritual. Now think about that term. Tim mentioned this before. I think he uh, picked up my sermon during the week off the photocopy and ripped it off, but that's all right. about that tomorrow. (laughs) I know you've heard people describe like this before, so spiritual. Often Hollywood celebrities, certain Hollywood celebrities anyway, are described as really spiritual people. Sometimes people will say to you, like this guy in New Zealand, uh, I wonder if you've heard this, uh, I'm not religious, by which I think they mean they're not involved or associated with any mainline denominational church, I think that's what that means, but I am spiritual. What do they mean? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I think it probably means one of two things. I think either when people say that something is spiritual, what they mean, actually, is that it was really out of the ordinary. So you might have heard, or I've heard, people get close to a lion or swim with a whale and say it was almost a spiritual experience, which is actually really ironic because it doesn't get more mundane than that. You're swimming with an animal for crying out loud. It's not spiritual. But anyway, I think it's about it being unusual. Or, on the other hand, people say 
when they talk about things being spiritual. Uh, that, that ref- they refer to activities that do transcend normal mundane activities. Things such as certain types of meditation or Reiki and, and so on. Here's my question to you tonight. Are you a spiritual person? Do you describe yourself like that? This is one of the questions that's going to hang over this series over the next five weeks, He Who Brings Life. You know, it's interesting, here at Norwest, uh, you ask us to consider all sorts of topics for preaching, uh, from sex through to the Ten Commandments, through the Lord's Prayer, through to marriage, through relationships, suffering, so on and so forth. We take all these requests really seriously. We obviously can't get to them all, but we certainly try to engage with them all at one level or another. I think the topic that has probably been requested of us more than any other topic in the time I've been here has been this one. Sorry it's taken six years to get to it, but it is what it is. Uh, But here we are. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be wrestling with who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and what that means for us as people who follow Jesus, most of us, under the new covenant. But here's the thing. Here's the caveat for tonight's sermon. We can't just dive in and start with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because as most of you know, but also have trouble explaining, God doesn't merely exist as Holy Spirit. He exists as Father and as Son as well. Classic teaching, uh, classic biblical teaching would describe this as one God in three persons, what we've come to understand as the Trinity. Now listen to how the Athanasian Creed Uh, written in the 6th century, tries to confirm and teach this for Christians as it teaches on the Trinity. This is on the screen. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty, co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son immeasurable, the Holy Spirit immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And on and on and on it goes. I thought about using it tonight as a creed. It was just way too long and we wouldn't have got to the end. Here's my point. If you want to know who the Holy Spirit is, if you want to know who He who brings life is, then the best place to start is by considering Him as He exists in the Godhead. We have to start our thinking about the Holy Spirit knowing that He lives with and in others. He's not this lonely single person just hanging out or this vapour that floats around by Himself. No, Uh, The Holy Spirit lives and moves and has his existence in relationship to his Father and to the Son. And so to consider the Holy Spirit apart from that is going to distort our understanding of who he is. So tonight we're going to kick off our series by thinking about the Trinity. I have not preached on this in the 60s I've been here, so it'll be new for a whole bunch of you. The Trinity, that wonderful, difficult, mysterious, biblical reality of our one God in three persons. Well, let us start by casting our minds to God. How do you think most Aussies 
conceive of God. If you're not sure about this, just think about it. If you go up to one of your friends at school who's not a Christian and say, who do you think God is? Assuming they're not an atheist. Perhaps it's your next door neighbour, someone at work. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Can I say, if that's you, brilliant to have you with us. We love having people here who are wrestling with who Jesus is and has, how he fits into life. The question for you is, how do you conceive of God? My guess is that the popular conception of God, if people have one, is one of an isolated, distant, singular being. Perhaps the watchmaker who created the world got it ticking, if you like, and then washed his hands and stepped back, leaving the world to run its course. Perhaps the judge, the one who grimly and sternly looks down to reprove and rebuke of all fun, life and pleasure. Perhaps the irrelevant geriatric, who's old-fashioned, out of touch, and really, for honest, just doesn't make any sense at all. I wonder how people think about God. Well, the fact is, the Bible's teaching on who God is just couldn't be any more different to what most people assume. In the Bible, God's revealed to us in a tri-unity. A tri-unity, a trinity. Three persons in one God. Now, I don't know how much you understand about the Trinity. Before I went to Bible college, my understanding of the Trinity was largely agricultural. Uh, I thought the Trinity was like a shamrock. You know, three leaves, yet one plant. Is that where you are? Now, whilst that wasn't completely unhelpful, it almost was completely unhelpful. See, I think when I started theological college, I was probably, perhaps like many of us here, what I would now describe as a functional Trinitarian. What's that? That is, I believed in the Trinity. The Bible described the reality of the Trinity clearly. We heard it teach and taught and spoken about at church and youth group. But what impact that had on my life, I had no idea. And if I'm honest, not really a great deal of interest either. Maybe that's you. Perhaps it's the Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant who captures your feeling about this best. It's on the screen. The doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. And it's even more clearly irrelevant if we realise that it transcends all our concepts. Well, let's see. Let's see. Tonight we're just going to look at two aspects of our God in Trinity. We're going to look at who is this God in Trinity and then we're going to look at how does this God in Trinity act. So who is this God in Trinity? At the heart of who God is, is three persons. Now that sounds weird. Let's be clear about that. That is strange because we all equate person with human. But personhood is bigger than humanity and there were people who existed well before humanity and they existed within God himself. Now just to be clear, there is only one God. That has always been the claim of monotheistic, mono one theistic God, monotheistic Judaism, monotheistic Christianity. There's only been one God. But God's very being, who God is in his essence, is made up of relationships within himself. Three persons personal beings who are constantly relating to one another. And the Bible presents these three persons to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
three persons who in fact find their very life in their relationships with the other two. More than that, none of them exist apart from their relationships with the other two. Here's what this means. You cannot know any member of the Trinity apart from their relationships to the other. It's the relationships that a member of the Trinity has with the other two that shows you who they are. Now, that might seem like a new idea to you, but I want to suggest that you already, most of you, you already know that. That's not a new idea at all. Because even the names that we use for them now, and like always, point to the relational identities between them. So when we pray, very often, I noticed Jono didn't tonight, which didn't help, but I'll speak to him tomorrow as well. When we pray, very often we'll pray, Dear Heavenly Father. Right? Father. That's not an abstract term. No, that is something. And that reminds us that God, who we pray to, is the Father of the Son. But what we know of who the Father is comes from how we understand he relates to Jesus as his Father and Jesus being the Son. Then we refer to Jesus, don't we? Jesus, the Son of God. Now, that's not just some title we give him or some throwaway line or it sounds good package like that. No, no. That's telling us something about who he is. The Son is the Son of the Father. What we know of Jesus, we understand from his relationship to the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son and can only be known rightly when we see his relationship to the other two. I know that sounds heavy. We're going to get clarity shortly, so stay with me. Just to remind you what we've seen, what we know of who God is comes from the relationships he has within himself. Well, show us that in the Bible. No worries. That's fine. Uh, let's have a look now in the New Testament where Jesus refers to this finding of identity, the Trinity's finding of identity within each other. So this is John 14 on the screen. Don't you believe, Jesus says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father's in me? Second quote, uh, John 10. Jesus says, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand, listen to this, that the Father is in me and I'm the Father. Just to be clear, None of you speak that way. I don't say, I'm in Bree and Bree's in me. No, that's the closest human relationship. You don't speak like that. Jesus is talking about something really unique here. And actually, these are those sort of verses that you read in your Bible, you don't get, so you keep, you just jump over it until you actually get one you can make a comment on or, you know, sort of talk about or understand. But don't move over them too quick. They're very important because what we see in these verses is this. We see Jesus referring to an absolute unity of being, right? I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. That is a, a unity that no other relationship has. And yet within that relationship, Jesus refers to a distinction that is relationally defined. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. What we understand, here's the bottom line, what we understand of the person of the Father and of the Son is determined by their relationship to each other. Who cares? Who cares? I mean, this is so dry, right? I'm, it's, I'm dying up here. You're dying down there, right? This all sounds so theological, so theoretical. So what? Being a functional Trinitarian worked for me for like 27 years. It's probably working for you, so who cares? Well, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit cared deeply, the Apostle Paul, and on and on. Consider this. If God did not exist in Trinity, if God did not exist in Trinity, you could not know him. It changes things a bit. 
Let me explain that. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll find that as you read it, there's this repeated and common theme that comes up all the time in the Old Testament that no person, no human, can see God and live. You might be familiar with that. Now, what's going on there? Uh, it's because God is so pure, so holy, so perfect, so righteous that mere humans before God will be overcome by His majesty. Uh, they can't stand in God's glory and live. So this is what stands behind the most well-known passage on this, which is Exodus 33. It'll be on the screen in a second. Background is Moses, leader of God's people, really righteous guy, asks God if he can see God's glory. God responds by saying this on the screen. Moses, I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. The story goes on. What we read is that God places Moses in the cleft of a rock, covers him over with his hand to protect Moses. And what this does is allows Moses to get close to God's glory but not look upon God's glory. And so he survives. Here's the thing. We then get to the New Testament, right, where you've got Jesus, God as a man, and Jesus is seen everywhere. People eat with him, they touch him, they talk with him, he weeps with people, so on and so forth. They don't die. What's going on? Contradiction in the Bible. Uh, No. What we find is that God is acting in his world for different tasks through different persons of the Trinity. And Jesus, God incarnate, and that's simply Latin for God in flesh, brings the fullness of God to people like you. He does it as a man. Why? So we can access and know the glorious God without dying on the spot. Brothers and sisters, the Trinity is really important. I hope you're starting to move, even just slowly, a small amount from being a functional Trinitarian to a thankful Trinitarian. Well, that's our first bit. That's a brief look at who God is within himself in Trinity. We've seen he's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's our second question. How is it that God acts within the Trinity? How is it that the members of the Trinity treat each other? That's worth thinking about. Uh, The person who shows us this most clearly is the Apostle John. Uh, which is why, actually, John's Gospel might be one of the harder of the, three, of the four to read. Here's what John shows us. John shows us that in the three persons of the Trinity, they all relate the same way to each other. And the way they relate is in this perfect, radical, other-person-centeredness. That is, each member of the Trinity all live to serve the other two members. Let me demonstrate this from John's Gospel. So we read in John that the Father, let's start with the Father, the Father gives the Son everything. So on the screen, John 5, John, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The Father has life and gives it to his Son. John 5, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything, everything in His hands. What do we learn? We see here that the Father is completely other person-centered. He gives all He has to His Son. So the next question has to be, okay, well, how does the Son, how does Jesus respond? Spoiled brat, 
having been given all things, how does he then treat his father? Well, John again. Jesus says this, By myself I can do nothing, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 8, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, listen to this, but speak just what the Father has taught me. John 14, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You see, that Jesus' response back to his Father is one of recognizing all Jesus has is from his Father. And so he then lives to please his Father, to bring glory to his Father. Jesus is entirely focused on someone other than himself. What about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit treat the other two members of the Trinity? One verse on this, John 16. Listen to this. This is very interesting. Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Listen to this. He will not speak on his own. Now just think about that for many other Christian theologies around the Spirit. Just think about that. The Spirit will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. The point is the Holy Spirit also points away from himself back to the two other persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. What it's like, friends, what it's like in the Trinity is this dance. It's the best way to describe it. It's this dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit where they act and interact and weave in and around and through each other for the glory and joy and pleasure and honour of the other. What we find in the Trinity is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are completely, radically, perfectly other person-centred. To put it another way, God within himself is constantly focused on the good of the other. Now, you need to know that in the Bible there is a technical theological term for this. There is a term that's used in the Scriptures to capture what's going on here, this intricate interrelation between the members of the Trinity. You ready for it? You might want to write down. It's tricky. It's called love. It's called love, which all of a sudden starts to make sense of 1 John 4. God is love. Well, what does that mean? Well, it goes on to say, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What's love? What's the clearest display? Not how Jesus feels about you, not how I feel about someone else, that God would send Jesus to pour his life out for sinners. Radical, perfect, other person centeredness. Love. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? I mean, really, I'm dying up here. This is just theological, theoretical. So what? Being a functional Trinitarian is just fine. Is it? Consider this. If God did not exist in Trinity, you would not know how to be in a relationship with anyone else. Why is that? Because in the very first Bible reading we heard tonight, we heard these words. It's Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 teaches us that we have been made in the same way 
and for the same thing. We've been created in God's image. In fact, all humanity has been made in God's image. So what? So what? We had to be like God is. We had to act like God acts because we have been made to be like Him. You know, all of us here tonight, all of us, who we are as people is actually defined, determined by the relationships we find ourselves in. Or to put it another way, personhood is defined by relationships. Now that's going to sound strange to you because our world tells us a different story. I'll come back to that. But here's the thing. Who Pete Stedman is as a person is defined by the relationships I'm in with God first and foremost and then with others. So who is Pete Stedman? Pete Stedman is a child of the Lord Most High. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son, a brother, an uncle, a pastor, a friend, a neighbour, a creature, a human. All of these things make up my very being. They are all relational categories. And here's the point. Apart from them, you could not know me And apart from them, I couldn't know others. Now, if that sounds strange to you, that might be because this is a view that has been thoroughly rejected by our world ever since the Garden of Eden. In our world, you are a person who is not defined by relationships. Our world, uh, we we try to attempt to find ourselves in our world by rather our individuality, our, our lack of relationships. Be yourself. Just do it. You are your own boss. And the profoundly atheistic message that we hear is this. You exist by yourself for yourself. You can do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and no one can stop you. That is just the creed of all history and all human creatures. Now, some of you will remember this song from not... Well, actually, almost none of you will remember this song. Some of you might, from 1965, uh, by the Rolling Stones. I'm free to do what I want any old time. I'm free to choose who I see any old time. I'm free to bring who I choose any old time. Love me, hold me, love me, hold me. You got it, Mike? I can see up the back smiling. I'm free any old time to get what I want. It's all about you. And friends, just to be clear, this is absolutely the basis of almost every meaning in life book that you'll pick up in bookshops. Be true to yourself, be kind to yourself, make yourself happy. This is the gospel of Oprah. This is the gospel of Ellen. You'll also hear people say, and I've said this myself, you know what, I don't care what people think, I'm just going to do what I want. Ever heard that? Ever said that? I don't care what they think. You know what? That is profoundly untrue. You're kidding yourself if you've said that, as I have. The fact is, we do care deeply about what other people think, despite our protests that we don't. We care because God has wired us, made us, created us to care. Now, more than that, the Trinity shows us one more thing. The Trinity also teaches us how it is we are to treat those other people in our lives with whom we are in relationship. And like God himself, we are to be marked by radical other person-centeredness. What does that mean? That means God calls his people to live, speak, act and think for the good of others before ourselves. 
Now, are you serious? This is one of those rare moments, maybe that's not so rare, one of those moments where you're sitting there and I say something and you think to yourself, is this bloke so out of touch with the real world that he thinks we're going to do that? Like, really, has he just spent so much time in his office that he actually doesn't know how the real world operates? I mean, what, we put everyone before ourselves. I mean, not only does that sound like impossible, but that also ups the, uh, opens up the potential of being mistreated by others. Yeah, it does. And so most people will never live this way. But you do know where Jesus ended up, right? You do know where Jesus ended up when he lived this way. What most people do is live with themselves at the centre, not Jesus and others. But here's the warning. It is unwise to choose to live in a way that is counter to your design. It's unwise to live in a way that runs counter to how you've been created. It's a bit like, maybe this will help for the visual learners, it's a bit like trying to open a tin of spaghetti with a flathead screwdriver. Okay? It is, anyone tried this? I don't recommend it. Uh, it's dangerous. It's damaging. But it's possible. The tin will be cut up. Your hand will be cut up. The screwdriver will be bent. But you can do it. But then if you go from that and just pick up a can opener, you thought, oh, well, it's a whole new world, like, done. Because the can opener was designed for that purpose. Now, here's the thing. It is the same with the way we choose to live. If you choose to live contrary to God's design, that uh, you choose to live in a way where you put yourself at the centre, where your identity is found in you and your successes and this and that, where we place the service of self before anything else, I want to say that that is entirely possible. We see it every day. But it is dangerous and damaging. We see that every day as well. The fact is, we have been made to find true meaning in life when we live according to our design. And we've been made in God's image. What is God like? God's being is defined by relationships with others and he is perfectly other person-centred. Well, let me finish. Uh, I wonder, I know this has been heavy. It's the Trinity, you know. Uh, I wonder if considering this today, considering the Trinity tonight, has made a little bit more sense for you about how we here at Norwest live as God's people. I wonder if there was something I said tonight that made you think, ah, that's why we do this, or that's why we've done that. Uh, Just to be clear, this is a church, I believe, that has a very high proportion of people who understand that life is about relationships and that love is best expressed in living for the sake of others before yourselves. I reckon we have a higher proportion of people here who get that than in other places I've been. Uh, And it's because of that that people here understand this, that our church here works at Norwest. Norwest is a highly functional church. Just try elsewhere. Uh, And I believe that to be the case because people here truly strive to live according to their design. So just to be clear, very rarely in this place do I hear, very rarely do I hear comments like this. Well, I don't like this. Well, that's not my taste. Well, that doesn't suit me. I almost never hear that. Now, maybe that's because people aren't bold enough to let me know, maybe. Much more likely, it seems to me, uh, it's because God's people in this place know that, of course, it's not all about them. It's not all about their personal preference. But life, and church specifically, is about living together as God's people, serving others before yourself, loving others, laying down your life for others, that others might flourish and grow to the glory of God, 
even when decisions made do not align with personal preference. Especially, actually, when decisions made do not align with personal preference. You see, when that happens, as it does here regularly, we are living Trinitarianly. One example, and we're going to finish on this. Most of you know this story. We've spoken to you about it before. Uh, God has brought remarkable growth here over the last six years. You all know that. Three years ago, because of that, it became clear that we needed to shut down our 8 a.m. traditional service to make more room for the many new young families and children that God was bringing along to Norwest. We did that, and we planted our existing 9 a.m. service and our 10.45 service. A huge cost a huge cost was borne by our 8am saints most of whom were here this morning at 9am they lost a style of service that they had grown up with and loved they lost an intimate relational congregation that they would never get back never get back in a congregation the size of 9am I visited every member of 8am before this happened to talk to them about it, to pray with them and I heard almost the same thing from everyone and this is the message not the words but the message each of them said I said Pete this is very difficult for me we love our 8am congregation we will grieve that it is no more the 9am congregation is not what I would choose But it is not about me. It's not about my comfort or personal preference. It is about seeing God do a remarkable thing in this place. And it is what we've been praying for. We will not stand in the way. Brothers and sisters of Chapel Lane, ask any minister... That is not how 8am congregations usually behave. We've run this church forever like this, you might hear. You're killing the church, you might hear. You don't care about older people, you might hear. Or my favourite, you hate the prayer book. Not one comment like that. Not one. Not here. What a model 8am have been to us all. It's called Trinitarian living to the glory of God. Go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, particularly the deep parts, the the parts that we often jump over because they're tricky. But, Father, when we plumb the depths of your word, we find new insight into who you are. Father, we want to thank you that you reveal to us in your word uh, yourself and the way that you live in eternity as Trinity. Three persons forever serving, loving, uh, living for the other. 
Will you help us be more and more in your image by living more and more like you live? Will you help us love, serve and lay down our lives for the good of the other and for the glory of God? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we don't have time for questions, uh, but I'd love to have a chat to you up the back. I'll be around, so I look forward to speaking to you then. Musos, come on down. Well, we're going to uh, sing, a, sing a hymn uh, during this series that we're going to teach to you now. Um, so please stand and join us when you feel comfortable to join. It's called A Breath of Life. <laughs> 